awesome outpouring your spirit tonight. And Lord, I pray for every person that's here within the sound of my voice, those that are going to hear this recording, those that are listening by live stream, those that will, you know, maybe hear this years down the road. But Lord, I pray for every person that's going to be listening to this, that your blood come over them right now. And Lord, I pray that your precious Holy Spirit just invade where they're at. And Lord, let every person, let there be such an anointing on this word, such a glory, that every single person is locked in to give you their best and their full attention to get focused. And Lord, I ask you to speak through me tonight by your Holy Spirit words of life and truth to go out as living seeds sown in a good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives watered by the Holy Spirit that will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. And I thank you for the awesome anointing of the Holy Spirit just locking everybody in to get focused and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Talking about the tabernacle. The Brownsville Revival was prophesied that that would be the beginning. Dr. Cho said it would start in Pensacola. It would move 50 miles west, which it's doing that right now. It would end up backing its way back up into the east coast and then go up the east coast across the nation to the southwest and then up the west coast to the Pacific Northwest. And when it got there, all of America, all of America would be ablaze in the fires of revival. And many other prophets, many other people have seen America ablaze in the fires of revival. So this is where we're at. The Brownsville revival was amazing, but it was also just an outer court experience where people were getting saved, which was a bronze altar experience. People were getting right with God. And people were being water baptized. That's the laver. And for the most part, that was what was going on. I mean, it was an amazing move of God. Amazing. And great revelation about speaking blessings came out of that revival. But the priest would speak a blessing in the outer court. So again, that was an outer court revelation. And a tremendous sermon about leprosy in your house, about cleansing your house. But again, that's an outer court teaching. So it seemed like God, it was a it was a revival of great preparation for the days ahead. And many people responded to that and received from the Lord. So that's kind of where I'm coming at through this series is God is preparing us for a great visitation. And I'm really feeling, even in our midst, I'm beginning to feel a major increase of the anointing and the glory. It's very exciting. I mean, you can really feel a depth like never before. And there's a great preparation in Dallas. You know, there's people that are being disqualified because of pride and because of different reasons. They're being disqualified and, and God can't use them. But there's, there's a great army, though, that's arising that is hungry for God. And they're seeking God in prayer. They're going after God. And great things are happening. God, there's a great preparation for an amazing revival in the Dallas region. All right. So I'm going to talk about the bronze altar, but as I get into this, I want you to look on page three where it shows the tabernacle, the whole picture of it. And what you can see when you look at it, let me just real quickly show you the tabernacle was about the size of a football field and there was a white fence that went all the way around it and there was only one way in. The way this thing is positioned, the left-hand side is the east. And so people would come in through the east 
through the left-hand side. And you can see that there was one gate on the east, and it was made up of blue, purple, scarlet, white. And remember I told you that it's the, it represents the gospel. The blue always speaks in the Bible of coming down out of heaven, like the sky is blue coming down. And that's the way Jesus was presented as the Son of God in the book of John. Also, the red in the Bible, scarlet or red, always speaks of blood and it speaks of suffering. It speaks of sacrifice. And that's how Jesus is presented in the Gospel of Mark as the suffering Savior. The white is uh, Jesus presented as righteous. The white linen always speaks of righteousness. And that's the way he was presented in the, the book of Luke. And, of course, purple in the Bible always speaks of royalty. So Jesus was presented as the King of the Jews, the King of Kings. He was presented that way in the Gospel of Matthew. So this, on the left-hand side, this gate represents the Gospel. And as you went from left to right, as you came in that gate, there was only one way. There's only one way to the Father. That's through Jesus. And as you went through that gate, the first thing you would see is the bronze altar. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. But the bronze altar represents the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to explain that more here in a moment. And then you went from the bronze altar to the right to the laver. The laver represents the washing, like water baptism, the washing of the water of the word. And priests would wash their hands and feet. And they had to be washed that way before they could go in to minister unto the Lord. And even though the picture may be small here, it gives you an idea. And the priest would go in barefoot, which I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. And also they could not have any type of a nudity. And I'm going to explain that as well. So they went from left to right, the gate, the bronze altar, the laver. Then they went inside the tent. Now this tent is actually completely covered where you cannot see in it. It's an actual tent. But what the artist did was they rolled back part of the tent they rolled it up and rolled it back so that you could see inside but when you went in the very first thing was the holy place it was a rectangle and on the right hand side was the table of showbread where they take communion on the left hand side was the lampstand and then right in front of you was the golden altar of incense and that was the holy place then there was a veil and on the furthest right of that of this picture in that tent is the holy of holies that's where the ark of god dwelled and that's where God's glory, His manifest presence dwelled. And that was the progression. The whole purpose of the tabernacle was to get into God's presence. And so as I talk about this, I mainly want to focus on the bronze altar, but I may talk about some different things as we go. The bronze altar. As I mentioned earlier, the law of first mention, there's a principle in the Bible that where, where something is mentioned the first time in the Bible, it sets a precedent for everything else. That's why a lot of people do not understand the Bible because they don't understand the law of first reference. Knowledge puffs up. A lot of people that I've seen that are very knowledge-based people, very theological people, are also very arrogant people that God can't use. Did you know that there's never been a recorded move of God in a seminary of significance that I know of or ever even heard of. Why? Because the Bible says knowledge puffs up. People learn a little bit, they get too big for their britches, and God uses other people. God uses the humble. Amen? So when I teach on these things, I want people 
to remain humble because if you get information for the sake of information, it can puff up. Okay, All this information is so that we can draw close to Jesus. And when we draw close to Jesus, we realize, look at who he is and then look at who I am. And if you really have an encounter with God, your response will be like Isaiah who said, woe is me. Okay, It's a humbling thing. But in this bronze altar, in this progression, the law first first mentioned is this, that numbers, all the numbers in the Bible mean something. The colors mean something. The different metals mean something. All of it has symbolism. And so, as I'm going to be explaining this, the symbolism is seen throughout the Bible. And I can give you an example. Gold always speaks of divinity. Just think of the, the streets of gold in heaven. Gold always represents divine, heavenly. Okay. Silver always speaks of redemption. So think of silver as like money. The blood of Jesus redeemed us. It was payment for us. Okay. And so silver speaks of redemption where, where Jesus' blood has bought you. That's what silver represents. Bronze or copper, whichever way you want to call it. It's really copper, but we'll go with bronze because that's what everybody's used to. But bronze speaks of judgment. And then iron is in the Bible, but it's not in the tabernacle because iron is a metal of war. And there's not warfare going on inside the tabernacle. It's a place of peace. Okay, But iron in the Bible speaks of war. Now you see these metals throughout the Bible and it helps you understand what God's trying to convey. For example, this is the law of first mention. So when you go from this and you start reading the rest of the Bible, other things like Daniel's revelation, remember? King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue and the statue had a head of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver, had a waist of brass, and then down at the feet, legs, and that were iron. When you understand this, it starts bringing depth to what God is trying to say. Like, for example, when God says the seven spirits of God, there's not seven Holy Spirits. Okay? There's one Holy Spirit. The reason why God says seven spirits of God is because seven is the number of perfection. Okay? Just like, for example, Jesus is seen as the lamb with seven eyes. The last time I looked, Jesus was birthed through Mary, okay? He doesn't have seven eyes. He doesn't have like two and then there's one here. There's two on each side. So it's definitely not something that is um, a reality. But what God is saying is Jesus has perfect vision. His judgments, his vision is perfect, okay? So when you understand, you have to go back to the tabernacle its furniture, the priesthood, to understand all these different things. That's why when you read about certain things in the Bible, and you'll see that, that scarlet is mentioned, or you'll see that the color purple is mentioned, it all has symbolism that goes back to this. But this is the law of first mention, meaning that this explains the rest of it. So if you don't understand this, you're not going to really deeply understand the rest of it. Does that make sense? And that's why a lot of people don't understand in time prophecy. They don't understand a lot of the things that's in the Bible because they haven't gone back and understood the foundation. This is the foundation. 
And so as I talk about this, I want to deal with the bronze altar primarily today, but there's a lot of other things I may talk about. All right, the bronze altar. The bronze altar was five cubits wide. Well, let me read some of this. I'll explain it. Altar in Hebrew is mizbech or zebach, meaning to slaughter an animal as in a sacrifice. The first mention of the altar in the Bible is in connection with Noah's disembarkment from the ark after the flood in Genesis 8.20. Bezaliel made the altar of the tabernacle seen in Exodus 38.22. So here's where a lot of symbolism is laid out. Okay, God commanded that where there was an altar built to him, that the earth and the stone the dirt and the stone underneath it would not be touched with a chisel. It had to simply be scooped up and put into a pile and God would not allow anybody to put a chisel to it and decorate it. And the reason why is because the altar was meant to point to God. But see, it's just like anytime man gets involved and they start decorating things, they want to sit down and worship the altar. Look at this beautiful altar I just made. This fancy chisel work I did over here. Come look at this. And then they all want to worship that instead of God. And so God is trying to show us that the altar was simply there to glorify him. Just like, for example, Jesus was born in a manger, and the manger was something that was obscure because it was never about the manger. It was always about his coming. If he was born in some kind of a cathedral somewhere, to this day there'd be people bowing down and worshiping the cathedral or the 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 stone that supposedly was the foundation of where he was born. Maybe people going there, you know, just bowing down and worshiping that. For some reason, man is always looking to make idols. I don't understand it, but they do. It's all about relics. But the bronze altar was five cubits wide and it was a perfect square because five is the number of grace. Make note of these things as we go through. In the Bible, this acacia wood that was used, all of it was made of wood, but this acacia wood that was used speaks of humanity. But this altar, underneath it, had dirt and rock, but it was created of wood and it was overlaid, the wood was overlaid with bronze. And as I go through this, this is really going to make a lot of sense. And in every way, it speaks of Calvary. The animals that were killed and their blood was shed, they would take the animals and cut them up into five pieces and put them on the altar. Jesus was pierced in five places. I've heard it taught from a very credible source that both Egyptians and maybe Romans understood how to make copper to actually make it very hard like steel. And so it was a very good possibility, scholars believe, that when Jesus was nailed to the cross that he was actually nailed with some kind of a copper, bronze type of nails, which of course would fit the pattern. But this bronze spoke of God's judgment. And when you look on the four corners, what do you see? You see a horn on each corner. There were four horns. Horns in the Bible always speak of power.
power. And what God is saying here is that this cross of Jesus Christ has the power to save the whole world. Because four is the number of the earth. There's four seasons. The Bible talks about four winds. On and on I can go, but four speaks of the earth. So what it's saying here is the cross of Calvary has the power to the north, south, east, and west, has the power to save the whole world. So what Jesus did at Calvary is so powerful that it can save anybody all over the world. It can release, number one, salvation, number two, healing, number three, deliverance, and number four, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. All of it is available because of what Jesus did at Calvary. So his blood that was shed on Calvary has broke through for that to be able to come to us today. So five speaks of grace. Not only was Jesus pierced in five places, but he was wounded in five different ways. Number one, he was bruised for our iniquity. Number two, there was, an in, there was incisions. Number three, there was piercings. Number four, there was a bursting of his heart. And number five, there was large lacerations on his back. So yes, he was pierced in five places, but he was wounded in five different ways. This is God's grace. As I mentioned, the acacia wood speaks of humanity, the bronze of judgment, the four horns, the power of the cross for the whole world. Now interesting, if you look at that picture of the bronze altar, halfway up that bronze altar, a cubit and a half up, there was a grate, and it was on that grate where they would lay the sacrifice. Just like, for example, I'm trying to, to make this a visual for people. Um, those of you that's ever grilled outside on a grill, you know that the coals are down underneath, and then you have a grate over the coals that you place the food on that grate. Okay, This was the same thing. Underneath there was wood. God originally lit this fire, by the way. Moses stood back and prayed and Lightning from heaven came down and lit the fire. And God told the priest, don't let the fire go out. Okay? So the wood that was underneath the altar kept a fire going. But there was a grate over that where they would place the animal sacrifice. Now, why is that important? Because a cubit and a half up at that height where the blood was and that sacrifice was taking place... That was the exact same height as the table of showbread that was in the holy, holy place and the mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies. Now, why is that significant? Because it shows that the outer court has to do with the blood, but to get into the holy place, the table of showbread, again, blood, and then to get into the Holy of Holies on that mercy seat, there had to be blood. So what God is saying is blood is the entrance. You got that? Remember that. It's not important to remember necessarily every little detail like that, but it is important to remember the pattern that the blood is what's going to get you in. It's not going to be your self-righteousness. It's not going to be you coming to God tomorrow and saying, Lord, I witnessed yesterday. I won somebody to you, so let me come into your presence. That's not going to get you in his presence. He'll be pleased with that. And, and you can come to him tomorrow, and you can praise, and you can dance, and you can shout until you fall down in exhaustion. You, you know, you can do all of that. This works. I'm not saying God wouldn't be pleased with your praise and worship. He is. But what gets you in is His blood. And that's His grace. 
And it'll never be your self-righteousness that gets you into his presence. It'll never be your works. It will always be the blood. Why? Because then Jesus gets all the glory. So don't ever think we're going to work it up. The problem with a lot of churches and ministries out there is, is they've gotten away from the, this pattern. See, God said this. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and I'll go back to some of that in this. When they sinned in the garden, what happened? Fellowship was broken. God would come down every day and he would walk with man in the cool of the day. That's what God wanted. Now think about that. God came down and walked with man. That's what God wanted. God created man. He created the garden. And then he came down and he would visit. He wanted to fellowship with them. He walked with them. Okay? When they sinned, it broke that fellowship. So God, from that moment, prophesied to Adam about um, Jesus coming. And then from the, that very moment, remember, remember what I told you, the animal sacrifice had to take place. There had to be blood. They had to be covered in animal skins. And now a process of redemption began. God, from that moment, said, now I'm going to have to go through a process to bring all of this back to where I want it to be, where I can have fellowship with man. They can be in my presence. I can fellowship with them. And so in this long process, God found Abraham. Then he used Moses. He created the nation of Israel and the priesthood. And then Jesus came at the right time. And then the church was born. And the church is preaching the gospel. And then Jesus is coming back at a second time. But all of that process, ultimately, if you read the end of the book of Revelation, the purpose of it was that the new Jerusalem came down and the dwelling of God is with man and man with God forever. It's God has brought it all back to where he's coming down again to fellowship with man. So really, the tabernacle was created so that God could dwell among men and fellowship with them. And the same thing through this pattern that it is the blood that brings you in. And so if you want to understand how do you get into God's presence, you've got to go back to the pattern that God gave. The problem is, is that a lot of, of different ministries, a lot of different churches, a lot of different preachers, a lot of different denominations, they've created their pattern the way they think it should be, and they don't want to change. But the glory is really not there. That's why you and I have got to be willing to be different. The Gentile church, by and large, has gotten away from the roots of the Old Testament. Therefore, their pattern is off. If you take any tree, any plant, if you don't believe me, try it. Pick it up, cut its roots off, set it down and see what happens. It's going to dry up. And that's what, what has happened to a lot of the Gentile church is they've been cut off. They cut off their roots of what I'm trying to teach you. And they've tried to create their own patterns. Well, if we do this, you know, and, and they, and a lot of it is hype. Let's get everybody whipped up into a frenzy and yell and shout and spit and be as loud as we can be or make it as cool and as cutting edge as possible. And these are the different patterns that they're creating, but there's not really the glory. I'm not impressed until the glory is there and then pe until people are getting saved, people are being legitimately healed, people are being delivered and set free from things, people are being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Those type of things impress me. If that's not going on, it doesn't matter. The smoke and lights may cost, the, cost them $20,000 and they may have the, the, the coolest sound you could imagine in their worship. And the preacher was amazing. But in the end, at the end of the day, 
If there's not a move of God, I'm not impressed. That's just entertainment. But these are the different patterns that people are trying to use to get God to do what, what they want Him to do, really. To come and bless what they're doing. If you'll find this pattern with God that He clearly laid out, God will come down and meet with us the way He wants to. God wants to fellowship with us. People have some mentality of God that He's a big boot in the sky that's waiting for you to mess up so He can squish you like a bug, and that's what a lot of people think about God. It's not that way. God wants to fellowship with man, but the problem is is that people are trying to go about that fellowship the wrong way. They're trying to come in their own self-righteousness. They're trying to come in through all these different means that's not going to work. What I'm going to teach you will get you into the presence. Amen? In the Old Testament time, on page 2 there, you can see that picture of the cross with the bronze snake. Really, the tabernacle metal was, was copper, because copper is a pure metal. But we're so used to saying bronze that We'll just use that. Everybody's used to that. But what happened was, the children of Israel had sinned. And God was punishing them. Remember, and there was these serpents that were coming in and biting them, and they were getting really sick. And they began to cry out to Moses. Moses prayed. And this is what God told him to do. He said, I want you to create a wooden pole, and then create a bronze snake, and I want you to put it on that pole. There's no way that a snake is going to be on one pole. So they had to create a pole and then a crossbar. And they set that copper, that bronze snake up there. And the Bible says that all the children of Israel that went there and looked at the snake were healed. That is a perfect example of Jesus on the cross. Galatians 3.13, that he became a curse for us. For cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree, redeeming us so the blessings given to Abraham come on us as Gentiles. That is a perfect example. When people look to Calvary, there's healing in that. Amen? There were five major offerings. Two of them were mandatory, three were not. You'll read about this in Leviticus and you think, what in the world does this mean? When the children of Israel came... They had. It was mandatory that they offer up a sin offering, which all of you are probably familiar with. If they had sinned and broken God's laws, they had to take some goat, some lamb, a bull or whatever, and they had to take it to the tabernacle. So you can see the head of the household. He's got his goat. And here he comes walking to the tabernacle. And now picture this. This is real. Everybody knows that Somebody sinned, okay? So here he's going. He's going to the tabernacle and his goat's probably, you know, making noise. Nah, you know, as he's going. People are looking at him. And he goes to the tabernacle. If you look at this, can you imagine how long and how many sacrifices they did that you know that at some point there was like some bull or whatever that got out of hand? You know what I'm talking about? Went through there and started kicking over some stuff. Kicked over the labor, you know. And they're having... So you can just imagine... But the, the outer court area probably stunk. There was blood everywhere. And the outer court was beautiful because you would come through that 
It was beautiful because it represented Calvary and it represented the washing, but you had to go through that. God didn't want you to stay out there where it stunk and where it was nasty. He wanted you to get past that into the holy place. But the children of Israel had the sin offering and they had the guilt offering and these were mandatory. The sin offering, like I mentioned, was, and God made it so simple that even people that were dirt poor and had nothing, they could afford just to get a little dove and bring it. You know, God made it to where everybody, that's why Jesus was so angry at the money changers because when he went to the temple, God, his original plan was with the sin offering to make it so inexpensive and so easy that anybody could go in and offer up a sacrifice for their sin, okay? But the money changers were ripping people off and making even the doves and all that be more expensive than it should be. It was all about money to them, making money. And it angered the Lord. But they would bring in that sin offering, and when they gave it to the priest, you can read the different patterns and things, but basically it boiled down to they would, they would cut up the animals, shed the blood, and put it there to be burned. And that was a sin offering. And the sins of that person or that family were under the blood of that animal. Now in the New Testament, the blood of Jesus actually washes away your sin to where it no longer exists. But in Old Testament time, it was simply covered by the blood. The guilt offering is sometimes when you sin, there's repercussions or For example, one thing could be this. Even though you're a Christian and you've asked forgiveness for your sin, if the Bible says if you don't forgive other people, then your sins are retained. So you could be a Christian and you could have offered up the sin offering, if you will, by confessing your sins, but yet there's something still holding you back. That's like the guilt offering. The guilt offering had to do with the repercussions of sin. So God, in His mercy not only was willing to forgive their sin, but he was also willing to wash away any of the repercussions from their sin. As how many knows when you, when you sin, sometimes there's repercussions to that. Like for example, the sin offering represents being forgiven, pardoned. But what about the things that happened because of your sin? Like maybe a sickness or maybe some kind of a bondage or the, the people that were hurt. Things that happened. That's what the guilt offering is. Not only can your sin be forgiven, but also the repercussions, the Lord will deal with those also. But those were mandatory. Now here, now, so how does that speak to us as Christians? Now, we need to be quick to ask forgiveness. Listen, you need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be somebody that goes out and and says something or does something you shouldn't do. And it takes the Holy Ghost days, weeks, before He can convict you and deal with that. You know, there's people like that. You need to be somebody that if you do something, you immediately are convicted and say, Lord, forgive me, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Please forgive me. Wash me in your blood right then. Because if if you're not one of those type of people that's quick to confess things, it can harden you. We need to be quick to confess our sins. That's the sin offering. It's there. It's available. The Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive you of your sins, the sin offering. Cleanse you from all 
unrighteousness, the guilt offering. The sin is pardoned. The repercussions are taken care of. Okay? So here's the, the three voluntary offerings. The first one was a burnt offering. The children of Israel, if they just simply, they love God, they, were, they wanted to worship Him, and so they would go to the tabernacle, and they would bring animals with them. And it wasn't that they were going there to, to deal with sin or anything, they just wanted to worship the Lord. So they brought these animals there, the priest would cut them up into five pieces, shed their blood, put them on the, on the altar, it would burn, that fire always speaks of God's judgment, it would burn... And the Bible says it would go up into God as a fragrant offering. Something that smelled beautiful to Him. Why? Because it was about their worship to Him. Okay? So how does this apply to us as Christians? Because now we are to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. This is so important. That was Old Testament. So how does it translate to us now in the New Covenant? Because now... We go before God and we willingly lay down our lives and our bodies on the altar and say, Lord, send the fire of your spirit, burn out whatever needs to go, because I'm laying down my life as a living sacrifice to you that I can live holy before you. That's the burnt offering. See, your sin's already dealt with. The guilt is dealt with. Now, this is an act of worship to God that now you're laying down your body and letting the Lord purify you that you are a living sacrifice for him. That's a burnt that's a New Testament burnt offering. That's a fragrant incense to the Lord. A pleasing offering. And you know in Peter in the New Testament it says that we're a priesthood that is to make um, sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Not every sacrifice is acceptable. In the Old Testament time, God got very angry. I believe it's in the book of Malachi because the priest and them, they were offering up lame, crippled sacrifices that they were not supposed to. Whenever you brought in sacrifices, you're supposed to bring your best. But they were bringing the, the worst and it angered the Lord. Not every sacrifice pleases the Lord. It doesn't please the Lord whenever people come to church and they've just been sleeping with somebody that's not their wife. They've been in sin. And now they're going to come in Sunday morning and worship the Lord. That's not a pleasing sacrifice. Their mouth just cussed somebody out the other day, and they haven't even confessed it as sin, and now that same mouth is worshiping the Lord. The Lord is wanting to have sacrifices that are pleasing to Him. The second sacrifice that was Voluntary was the grain offering. They, again, you can read about it to get the details, but they would bring grain to the Lord and, and put it all together. It had, you know, if I remember right, salt and all of that, and they would, they would mix it there and it would burn. But what grain speaks of, the grain, it's, for example, I picture people going out into the field and picking the grain, you know, but it has to do with your service, your works for the Lord. That you love the Lord so much that not only are you offering your body as a living sacrifice, but now you say, Lord, I lay my life down before you. Whatever you want me to do for your kingdom, just tell me and I will go do it. That's the grain offering. That you're willing to lay things down 
and do what God has called you to do. Not everybody's willing to do that. Okay, There's a lot of people that have been called that have said no. But the grain offering is somebody that's willingly going to begin to serve the Lord. And that pleases the Lord. That's a pleasing sacrifice to Him that He's spoken to you to do it, whether it's to work with children, youth, to go on the mission field, to lead worship, whatever it is you're called to do, to pastor a church, to teach, whatever, that you say, Lord, I'm willing to go do it. And then the third is the fellowship offering. The fellowship or the peace offering has to do with our fellowship with the Lord. They would bring things to the tabernacle. And in this, it's interesting because there was a, a wave offering and wave offering and a, a heave offering. And that's very foreign to you guys, I know. But the priest would take certain things and they did a, what's called a heave offering to the Lord and then a wave offering. What that was was they would take of the sacrifice and they would do like this to the Lord as a heave offering. And then they would wave it like this to the Lord as a wave offering. What does that make? The sign of a cross. And they didn't even realize they were doing it, but they were worshiping the Lord that way, and it's in the Bible to do so. But the fellowship offering represents us being willing to worship and to pray and to spend time with the Lord. Not everybody's willing to do that. God has called everybody to a life of prayer, but not everybody's willing to come spend time with Him and to pray. It's not mandatory, but it's something that pleases the Lord. So, number one, the burnt offering. You lay down your life, say, Lord, I'm going to lay my life on the altar. Send your fire, burn out everything that needs to go. I want to be a living sacrifice for you, holy and acceptable, that there's all this junks out of my life. I'm a burnt offering. Number two, now I want to serve you. Whatever you're calling me to do, whatever you're speaking to me to do, I want to go do it. That's the grain offering. And then you say, Lord, not only that, but I'm going to start getting up in the morning and I'm going to spend time with you. That's the fellowship offering. So this applies to us today, the patterns there in the Old Testament, but we have the fulfillment of it now in Christ. So when you look at the priest, I know this picture is small here. There's a really good picture over here and you can Google this. But the priests of the Old Testament, I'm not going to t teach on their wardrobe right now, but I'm just going to show you a few things. This is important. They had a layer of white, which I've talked about, righteousness. Then they had that layer of blue, the blue tunic. What does blue speak of? What? Coming down from heaven. So it's the baptism in the Holy Spirit where you're clothed with power from on high. So the white is the righteousness. The blue is the clothing of power. And then they had a golden ephod, and the gold is the glory. So priests are supposed to be clothed in righteousness, power, and glory. The glory of God. Just a couple quick things. They were barefoot when they went in. Now, that's important, and I want to show you some things. Is it okay to get off a little bit out of the tabernacle and show you some things about things you need to be careful of? What did God tell Moses to do when he came upon the burning bush? Take your shoes off. Take your sandals off as holy ground. Feel free, you know, in church to take your shoes off. If you, It's an act of worship to God. 
That is, of course, unless you got some stinky feet, all right? <laughs> People are like, amen. But anyway, feel free to take your shoes off. It's an act of worship to God. But let me show you something important, okay? Whenever you go to these pagan satanic temples where demon gods are worshipped, in 1 Corinthians it talks about the table of the Lord and the table of demons, and it talks about that the worship of other gods is the worship of demons. But people do a lot of international travel when they do. A lot of times they'll go, just as sightseeing, they'll go see different temples. What you got to understand, these different temples, they're pagan, and the worship of demons is there. And so there's a principal spirit that's there that's worship. And what is it that they always try to get people to do? Take your shoes off when you go there. Why? Because it's an act of worship to that deity. So I would encourage you, don't take your shoes off. Okay? Now, some people might feel led to go pray in different places. If you feel led to do that, follow the Lord, man. You know, we got authority. Amen. But I remember this story one time. Kenneth Hagin was saying that him and his family, they were in some foreign land. I don't remember the whole story. But as part of the trip, they just simply walked through an area where there was either a mosque or some kind of a, a worship to another god. And based on what I just told you, this is interesting. He said that they, you know, you, he said you could feel things were off spiritually, but all of a sudden, he said some unseen power went past them really fast and hit his son. And he said it hit him so hard that it threw him backward in the air and he landed on his back and his two shoes were still there. It knocked him out of his shoes. Now this is the interesting thing about that. So they went over to the sun, prayed, rebuked the enemy, picked him up. He was fine after that. But see, whenever, for example, Satan's servants or whatever try to come in here, this is holy ground. It's dedicated to the Lord. The power of God is here. And they're going to have a real hard time circulating things because of that. But when a Christian goes on the other type of soil and you go on that, that's been dedicated to the devil. In one form or another, whether it's dedicated to Allah or Buddha or whatever, it's dedicated ultimately to the devil. It's satanic, okay? And it's like trespassing. So it's interesting that the principality of that temple was so angry that a servant of the Most High had just come on his property. And that they were not taking their shoes off. You see that? And so he that thing attacked the son and what? knocked his shoes seriously that's what happened and so whenever they prayed over him and all that but i'm telling you that be careful about these other cultures not out of fear some people are so fearful i feel sorry for some people fear has torment amen some people are very tormented they're tormented big time because of fear don't have fear but just use wisdom because when you go to other cultures i remember reading about this woman of god that went to preach in hawaii and she was saying that the people there were so sweet but the Hawaiian culture, just like almost all other cultures, is steeped in paganism. And she said that they had simply put one of those lays on her neck, and she didn't think anything of it. You know, she thought it was beautiful, but she started getting sick and not feeling good later, and she asked the Lord about it, and the Holy Spirit said, read up on the lay. 
and come to find out, and I'm not talking about the little plastic ones at Walmart. I'm talking about the real thing, okay, in Hawaii. But they use those, I forget the name of the flower, but it's a worship to their demon god. And even when the baby is born, they'll rub it with those flowers to, to get the blessing of their god. And so whenever they're putting that on you, it's an act of, may the gods here bless you, you know. So just be aware of the culture and what you're around. Because you go to Africa and, it, you know, you see these things and it's, there's more to it than just this little trinket there, okay? There's, a lot of times there's witchcraft associated with it. But I wanted to show you that what Satan has done, Satan saw this tabernacle and he's trying to pervert all of that. And you can see it. You can see what God brought on the earth, fulfilled in Christ, but this was the Old Testament pattern. And you can see how Satan... Did you know Satan is a fallen cherub and angel? He does not have creativity. Have you ever thought about that? See, humanity is created in the image of God, so God's a creator, and so humanity is given an imagination. And we have the ability to be creative. But Lucifer, being a fallen cherub, is not a creator. So what he does is, is he looks at the things of God. He doesn't create anything new. He looks at the things of God and then he tries to pervert them in every way that he can and turn that, direct that worship back on him. And that's why you'll see like in these Hindu temples, they'll go and they'll take an animal to the temple, shed its blood, sacrifice it to their God, and then take the blood of that and put it on their head and their children and all that. It's similar to what you see God initiated, but it's perverted. The worship of demons. You see what I'm saying? All right. The second thing I wanted to bring out in this is that if you look at this, what you cannot see underneath the priestly garments was that the gar the robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation, they had on these pajama bottoms called the breeches. Basically, it's just underwear. Okay. But God told them, listen, he said, if you come up on my altar and you don't have on those breeches, you will die. So some of you laugh, I'm going to tell you. It was serious with God that they did not expose their nakedness before him or they would drop dead. So this whole thing about nudity is serious with God. Now I'm going to tell you, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God created them where they were nude, but they were not really nude the way you would think it. If you read it, um, the first mention of them being naked and having no shame about it, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, the word there for naked is Arom, I believe it's A-R-O-M. I may have these reversed. You can look it up yourself. A-R-O-M. And it means partially new because they were created in the image of God. And God wraps himself in light, his glory. And so even though they didn't have on fig leaves at the time or whatever, they were still clothed in the glory. They glowed. There was a shining. There was a garment of light over them, the glory of God over them. When they ate the fruit, and you go to Genesis 3, and they were naked, the word naked in the Hebrew is E-R-O-M. It's a different word. The first word means partially nude. The second word means completely nude. What happened? The glory left. So the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory. So I'm going somewhere with this. God hates nudity. It reminds him of the fall of man. He did not create man naked the way people think. He created them clothed in his glory. And in the priest, they had to stay covered. If one of them had gone in there 
in a hurry and just forgot their pajama bottoms, they would have died because their nakedness would have been exposed. Now, the pattern into the New Testament is this. People need to be modest. I'm telling you. And nowadays, what you're seeing is people will go out and they take their clothes off, run around half-naked places, and then they want to come in and worship God. And it grieves the Holy Ghost. Even inside churches now, it's permissible for some reason because of worldliness that people come in dressed totally inappropriate. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Bible specifically says in the New Testament for women to dress modestly. What does modest mean? It doesn't mean that you have a bun and, you know, you've got long sleeves down all the way down, all that. That's not what it's talking about. That can be legalism, okay? What it's talking about with modesty is, yes, you can be modern and you can have a style or whatever, but it's not going to promote any type of lust at all. Now, some people are perverted and it doesn't matter what you wear, they're going to lust. You can be like the library lady and they're going to lust, okay, or whatever. (laughs) I'm not talking about appealing to that type of person, okay? But I'm talking about using some common sense. If you're coming in and you're worshiping the Lord and then your shirt's going way up like this and you're going over to to do something and things are being exposed, that's not right. And I've heard of people that have been on some dance team at church and while, while they were on the dance team, they dressed in such a way that was provocative that it was exposing their body. And people get mad and say something and there's churches that won't even deal with that. Friend... If you're not going to deal with sin in the camp, you're not going to have the glory. When you sin, the glory lifts. Okay? And I remember that Pastor Kilpatrick had talked about... uh, Now, the Brownsville Revival, the glory of God was amazing. And he had talked about years before that, that he had to deal with sin at times. It's uncomfortable. Nobody likes to rebuke others and deal with sin. And most people don't receive it the way they should. They get mad and leave instead of changing. But there was a young woman that come in, and I mean, she was dressed very inappropriately. And, and she, he said he was shocked because it was just kind of like, man, what are you doing? And she was one of the worship leaders or whatever. And, and, and she said, well, I'm going into the sanctuary like this. He said, no, you're not. And she got mad, of course, left, took people with her like everybody seems to want to do. Instead of humbling herself, he said, you know what? He said, the worship suffered for a short time, but we got some new people. But he said, the glory remained in the sanctuary. That's what he cared about. That's what I care about. I hope that's what you care about. So what if some people get offended here and there and don't, they can't handle it, okay? As long as the Lord is pleased and His glory is there. And it's not just the women. Some men, you know, may dress in church where, you know, they got pants on that's so tight it leaves nothing to the imagination. Let's just tell it like it is. That's not right. Friend, what's wrong with you? Somebody needs to say it, and I'm not ashamed to say it. We need to have holiness back in the church. I'm tired of hearing about I'm tired of hearing about these church sanctioned beer parties where people are getting drunk. I'm tired of hearing about worship leaders that outside of their holy worship they're going out dropping F bombs everywhere. And I'm tired of seeing people come to church dressed like harlots and then they're gonna worship God. That's not the way it works. The pattern is laid out clear that God wants us modest where it glorifies Him. Don't dress in a way at church or outside of church, man or woman, in a way that's going to stumble to somebody else and cause them to lust. That's not right. And it grieves the Holy Ghost. If you want God's glory in your life, don't go there. 
Amen? Now let me say this too, because I don't want to cause people to be a bunch of old, religious, Pharisee-type people, because there's going to be people that come in off the street that are getting saved, and you need to be patient with them while God cleans them up. Because I remember that... um, you know, all these people by the thousands were getting saved at the, at the revival in Brownsville. And, and Pastor Kilpatrick said he'd be up there, you know, and, and he'd see, seriously, prostitutes came off the streets because somebody invited them. They came down to get saved. So there they are bawling, makeup's all running down, and they're bawling and they're getting saved, which is awesome. But the way they were dressed, you know, and he said he would see his elderly women come up and they got their prayer claws, you know, and they're building a little tent. <laughs> But praise God, they didn't condemn the woman. They loved her. And they brought her in and they taught her. The Bible says the older women are to train up the younger. So don't expect me to see some young woman coming in inappropriate. I'm not going to be going to them having this big long spill with them about it. I'm going to send one of you ladies to go talk to them. That's what the Bible says. Don't put me in that situation. That's awkward. Amen. All right. But anyway, we need, we need to live holy before the Lord. I'm telling you, these patterns are serious with God. This business with taking your shoes off to other deities, that's serious with God. And about um, not being modest, that's serious. We want to have God's glory, so we need to learn what pleases the Lord and how to approach Him and how to host His presence. All right, this is the last couple things I want to close with. There were seven places that Jesus shed His blood on the road to Calvary. The first place was the sweat as he sweated drops of blood in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, in a garden many years before that, there were some people that said, God, not your will, but my will be done. You said don't eat this, but I'm going to eat it anyway. Jesus was in a garden thousands of years later, and he humbled himself down and said, Father, Not my will, your will be done. The sweating of blood, the shedding of blood that took place in Gethsemane was to deal with that original sin right there. And it broke the power of rebellion in our lives that as we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, now we have the grace to be able to not be rebellious anymore against God and to serve Him. And now, because of the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who lives in us, now we can say... Lord, not our will, but let your will be done. Amen? In a garden, many years before, man rebelled. What did it involve? It involved a tree of death that they ate from. Well, Jesus came from a garden too, and he hung on a tree of death, but Jesus became the tree of life. And all that eat of him will have life. I'm showing you some things. When sin came into the garden... The, the people of God, Adam and Eve, had to be driven out of the garden and there were cherubims with swords, one cherub with swords that came back and forth that wouldn't let them in. Why? Because in their sinful condition, they would still sneak back in there and eat from the tree of life and live forever in a sinful condition. And so God put a cherub there to keep them out. When Jesus was in the garden, God allowed that sinful men with swords came in too. So once again, you see swords in the garden. There's a lot of symbolism in this. But basically, the sweating of blood had to do with that original sin in the garden. And now, we can repent. 
Bible says, 1 Peter 2.24, that Christ born his body our sins, that we can die to sin and live righteous. Okay? So people tell me I can't help to sin or whatever. That's not true. It's unbiblical. The Bible says that you can overcome it. The problem is, is that people have not died to their flesh. So how do you die to your flesh? You get in prayer. Okay? It's conquered in prayer. All right, the second place Jesus shed his blood was the whipping post. The Bible says that they plowed his back open. Plowed it. The cat of nine tails went across his back. Those that have seen the Passion of the Christ, most likely that was a very accurate description of how brutal it really was. But they plowed his back open, and that paid for your healing. So those that have seen the movie The Passion of Christ, you saw there where his uh, back was being plowed open, you saw a pool of blood down there. That pool of blood and those wounds was for your healing. All right. See, there wasn't sickness or disease in the garden. That came in because of sin. So once again, Jesus was reversing what was brought in through Adam and Eve. Number three, the next place he shed his blood was on his brow. They put a crown of thorns on him, and they probably, as mean and as brutal as those men were, they probably put it there and slammed it down into his head. And he bled from his head area, from his brow, down and that blood that was shed what did god tell adam he said by the sweat of your brow you will eat there was a curse of poverty where things once before in the garden the garden took care of itself i mean adam just tended it but it took care of itself and he had all that he could ever need in that garden he was never going to go hungry okay everything was there but whenever he sinned and was driven from the garden now he had to labor and toil for everything he had And Jesus broke that at the cross to where now you can have supernatural provision. You can have prosperity. Now the the curse under the law is broken. And now even as Gentiles were brought into that blessings given to Abraham where God said, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory. That's what he says. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus said, "If, if the father will feed a bird and clothe the lily... He'll take care of you. Just seek first the kingdom, and then these other things will be added. Amen? All right, the fourth place Jesus shed his blood, I've already talked about this, was in his hands. When they nailed him to the cross, blood came out of his hands. That is now so that we can destroy the works of the devil. And I love, I mean, I could talk about a lot of things, but this story comes to mind, but one time, Carlos Anaconda in the Great Argentine Revival, somebody brought to him, whenever they served the devil, and they had some amulets and different things, and they brought to him something that was actually just a bracelet. There was nothing wrong with it, but it had been, something had been done by like a witch doctor, a shaman to it. And so they brought it to him, and they said, Brother Carlos, do I need to throw this away? Again, it wasn't witchcraft paraphernalia, it was just a bracelet. And Brother Carlos said, well, what happened? They said, well, this witch, this shaman or whatever did some spell over it. And he said, give me that thing. He said, in Jesus' name, I break that off. And this is now blessed of the Lord and gave it back to him. Why? Because now we have something in our hands to destroy the works of the devil. Break it off. Amen? Now, if it's witchcraft paraphernalia and that's what it's dedicated to, destroy it. Okay? But this was just a bracelet. All right, number five. The fifth place was in his feet. They drove a spike down in his feet. His feet shed blood. 
There's something the Bible says, everywhere the soles of your feet tread, I will give you. He said it to Abraham, and Abraham walked around Canaan, and everywhere the soles of his feet tread, and then he said it to Joshua. And there's something about where the soles of our feet tread, that there's an authority in our feet, and I believe there's an authority in the dance. There's an authority when people dance, there's something in their feet. And I remember when Jesus, I've told this story many times, but when Jesus went over to the garden, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, where the man that had the legion of demons, the Gadarenes, when he went over there on boat, and he stepped out of the boat and his foot hit the soil of the Gadarenes. Read it for yourself. As soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat, his foot hit the soil. He stepped out of the boat. That man with the legion of demons popped up like crazy, started screaming and yelling and running everywhere saying, what do you have to do with this? What happened? There was something, some authority in Jesus' feet that when he stepped there, the kingdom of God was released. And it stirred up the enemy. The sixth place, Jesus shed his blood. Six is the number of sinful man. Okay? Man was created on the sixth day. That's why the whole 666 is because it has to do with sinful man. But on the sixth place, Jesus shed his blood was from his side. God, I've already shared this, I know, but God took a rib out of man to create Eve. Jesus was creating a bride. And also, when children are born, there's blood and water. Blood and water came out of his side. Through that, that bursting of the heart, the death, shedding blood and water out, that was to purchase children for the kingdom of God. And so, that was the sixth place. The seventh place Jesus shed his blood was this. It says that he was bruised for our iniquity. The bruising is a bleeding on the inside. Iniquity is a bent. The word iniquity is bent, perverse, crooked. And iniquity in somebody is a drive towards sin. That's why some people, they'll pray about something and and they seem to still keep struggling with it. Because in actual fact, it's not just something that's um, a temptation to them. But because of either generational inheritance or because of sinning over and over and over and over and over for a long period of time, they're actually their nature has become bent and crooked and there's a perversion there that God has to set them free from. But Jesus paid for our iniquity by being bruised, which is a bleeding on the inside. Iniquity is something crooked on the inside and Jesus bled on the inside so that that crooked place can be made straight. Amen? So these iniquity drives can be dealt with, and they need to be dealt with. Here's what I wanted to close with is the cross. You guys see that picture? This is the tabernacle inside the cross. I want to close with this. Hopefully those are live streaming. You have this up. I love this. At the top of the cross where the head would be, That's where the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, that's where decisions are made. That's where you get intimate with God and you get God's mind. You get his thoughts. Did you know in the book of Proverbs it says that, Lean not on on your own understanding, but all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Well, acknowledge, and all your ways acknowledge him, is the same Hebrew word that is used where it says Adam knew Eve. In other words, Adam laid with Eve. They were intimate and conceived a son. So what it's saying there is not sexual. I'm going to explain this more through the tabernacle. But it is being so close 
See, the closest that a husband can be with a wife is in that place of intimacy. Amen? That's the closest that two people are going to be together. Is in sexual relations. What God is saying, it's not in any way sexual, but he's saying we can be that close though. No sexual anything involved, but there can be such an intimacy with God that you're that close and you know him that well. And he's saying those that acknowledge me, that's a deep intimacy, and that has to do with the Holy of Holies. When you acknowledge God and you're intimate with him, he gives you his thoughts. Now watch this. This is powerful. Right underneath the head, that's the heart area. You know what that is? The altar of incense. The heart of worship. You know what touches God's heart? Worship. In the Song of Solomon, it talked about a a necklace she had that that had a sachet of myrrh that was on her chest. and, And it gave out a fragrance. Listen, there's something about a heart of worship that that touches God's heart. That's the heart of God. You can see it in the tabernacle. So the heart area has to do with worship. Now watch this. You're going to like this. At the cross, where the hands were, the right hand always speaks of power. And at his left hand, if you look at this, and Jesus was on the cross, at his left hand was the table of communion. Many times, if somebody has heart problems, they feel it in their left arm. There's a connection there. Okay. That's the left hand. It's The left hand is very much connected to the right hand. I'm going to show you that. At the right hand, the right hand has to do with power. The right hand is the lampstand. The power of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Revelation, is it okay I share a little bit of this real fast? And Okay, the church at Ephesus, the first time Paul went through Ephesus, nothing significant. The next time he came, it's in Acts chapter 19. The greatest revival of Paul's whole ministry. And it's recorded in Acts 19. Paul prophetically saw it. He wrote to the Corinthians and he said, There is an effective door that's open for me in Ephesus. But there are many that oppose me. So while he was in Ephesus, great major revival and a church was born in the fires of revival. The Ephesian church. You need to know that because when you read the book of Ephesians, you need to know this was written to a revival church. Okay, Now you go to the book of Revelation. You've got the seven churches of Asia. Remember, John got the revelation. He was writing it. Revelation chapter 2. The first church he was to write to was the Ephesian church. And he said this to them. This is a revival church. This was the warning. Jesus was seen to the church at Ephesus. He was seen as the one who had the seven stars in his right hand. The lampstand had seven lights lit up. And he said, you, you have forsaken your first love. First love is translated supreme love feast in the Greek, and it speaks of communion. He said, you have forsaken the table of showbread communion. Therefore, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Isn't that powerful? If you don't come back to the Lord's Supper, if you don't come back to the bread of presence and the blood then I'm going to remove the lampstand of the power of God and the revelation out of your midst. So the left and the right hand. Then you see the laver. What does the Bible say? From your belly will flow rivers of living water. That's the laver. 
the washing of the water of the word, the flow of the rivers. And then at the very bottom where Jesus' feet would be is the bronze altar where the blood fell and judgment took place for sin. And God dealt with sin. Isn't that powerful? So you can see the cross, I mean crystal clear here in the tabernacle. And in the outer court area, that in the outer court was where that, that blood and water from Jesus' side came out. What do you see in the outer court? You see blood and water. You see the blood at the altar, water at the labor. So those that are wanting to go deeper in the things of God, to learn the patterns of the Lord. I'm trying to do my best to present this in a way that it's really making sense and taking it slow. Okay. The main thing I wanted to get out of this was just that God is wanting us to, to honor his pattern. And the way that we come is we come through the blood. Because that's why in my personal life, I have felt very led to take communion before I pray. And I also feel led um, to take the Lord's Supper at the beginning of church services because it gives people a chance to get washed and covered in the blood of Jesus and to deal with anything they need to so that the blood is over them and wash them and cover them and what the blood allows them access into the glory. And the blood will give you access. And then also to kind of show you some things of how Satan has tried to take the holy things of God and pervert it in pagan temples and show you that. But this is what I want to pray with people about in the altar time if you want prayer. But one of the things about the labor, and I don't want to dwell on it because, again, I'm going to deal with the labor next week and talk about probably the priestly garments more. But the labor is the washing of the water of the Word and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But the washing of the water of the Word can also have to do with examining your life in light of, like, the Ten Commandments. And I want you to think about something for a moment, just real quick. Are there things in your life that are idols? Now, before you say no, do you really think about it? A lot of people, would you really be willing to really truly lay down your life, sell everything, go do what God's called you to do? I mean, really give up everything. Give up, lose everything. What in your life is so important to hang on to? Are there any idols of any kind, about anything? How's your mouth? The Bible says don't use God's name in vain. How's your mouth? And now, now let's go deeper than just using his name in vain. But what about things that tear down? What about gossip and slander? What about talking about people that we shouldn't be talking about them the way we're talking? What about things where careless words? Jesus said that our words, though they be careless, that we'll give an account for them on Judgment Day. So what about, what about our mouths? The next thing is what about dishonesty? You know, the Bible talks about lying and stealing. You know, I'm going to add to that cheating. But any type of dishonesty. So that's one of the Ten Commandments. Also, what about the, ten, the Tenth Commandment that most people don't really focus on? What about covetous? Envying what other people have. That you see something somebody has and go, I want that. I wish I had that. Covetous is something that has a lot to do when somebody has a covetous spirit about them no matter what they get it's never enough they want more you ever notice that 
They want something so bad they get it, but it really doesn't satisfy or make them happy. They want more. A covetous spirit will make somebody go farther, spend more, grasp after more, and it's just like a black hole that's never really satisfied. But covetousness is very serious. It has to do with being um, materialistic. A lot of ministries that have fallen have either fallen through sexual sin or greed. And the greed part is because they had something covetous about them that they didn't deal with. And over the years, Satan gradually, slowly seduced them deeper and deeper to where they got desensitized and they took the Lord's holy money and just began to just pour it on themselves, what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted to live this, you know, um, this lifestyle that's just flamboyant. And it was greed, covetousness overtook them. And they should have dealt with it a long time ago. They should have dealt with, why is it that i got to have all this stuff? Why do I have this lust for things? And then another thing, you know, you deal with the, the different uh, Ten Commandments and just go through them. What about honoring your parents? Not just biological, but spiritual parents. What about honoring of the parents? Okay, some people they really dishonor and disrespect their parents in different ways. Okay, and I feel that because, and, and I'm going to add in, what about sexual purity? Because the Bible says that any sexual activity, I know this is not one of the Ten Commandments, like what I'm saying, but Jesus said, you know, it says don't commit adultery. Jesus said, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery. So, beyond just that. Let's talk about other sexual sins like pornography, masturbation, lust, looking with lust, sex outside of marriage. You know, I went to another country one time, and there needs to be higher standards. And I was, I was there, I was in the cafeteria with some other Christians, and there was people that were handpicked that supposedly were going to be laying hands and praying for people in this great revival. And we were there to, to pray with people and minister as well, but these were people that were picked we had nothing to do with. And one of the guys that was picked, was sitting there, and I couldn't believe it. He's sitting there looking at a magazine, half-naked women, just flipping through it, and just, you know, at the breakfast table. And I'm sitting there walking in line about to get my oatmeal, and I'm looking over at the guy just thinking, he's going to be laying hands on people, you know. There's The standards have got to come up. So, what about sexual sin? The Bible says that your body is to be sexually pure. And when you defile your temple sexually... You actually open yourself up for some very serious judgments on your body. There have been people that have gotten into sexual sins that died of cancer. They've had all kinds of serious, serious health problems. It was very serious. They open themselves up. And, and the Bible says, I mean, you can Google this. It says, those that defile God's temple, God will destroy that temple. What is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body. And so don't defile your body. The Bible says that when you do, you're sinning against your own body. And so we've got to repent of these things. I know that those that are, that are coming up in Christianity, I know that many of you have very sincere hearts. But it's got to be not just a sincere heart alone. We've got to act on God's Word. Not just be a hearer, but a doer of the Word and putting it in practice. And now some of you need to be set free from some things. And this is why I feel... Is there an iniquity drive that you feel maybe in your life that you feel like you're driven towards something? Whether it's dishonesty, lying, 
it's some kind of a, a sexual sin or maybe some other of these I've mentioned, you feel like there's something in you that is like driving. Now, once we pray, God's going to set you free from that and you've got to change the way you think and the way you talk and start believing that it's going to be different. Amen?